Let me ask you a question. Do you um, enjoy going out for dinner? Yeah? No, some people are shaking their heads. Don't like going out for dinner. I, do you like, you know, nice, nice restaurant, go out and feast up, have a lovely meal? Yeah, most of us do. Actually, if you do, you're not alone. <laughs> studies, I was reading about this this week. The studies show that over this last year, over this last year or two, uh, here in the UK, there has been a significant rise in the amount of consumers that going out to have dinner, that rather go out and eat. Um, and that's despite all that, the pay freezes and things across the country, the rise in inflation, all those sorts of things. We're choosing to go out. The study showed, on average, that we Brits, we will go out, and oh, choosing to go out now, on average, two times a week. I mean, it probably doesn't apply to you. Sometimes maybe you're here and you're thinking, actually, I go out four or five times a week. So, you know, but, um, but on average, we go out two times a week. And on average, we will spend £288,000 in our lifetime in going out to eat. Yeah. Over a quarter of a million pounds in our lifetime going out to eat out. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> What has seen huge increases, though, in the brood, uh, uh, British food service industry um, is food delivery. You know, ordering food to come to be delivered to your door. The analysts state that um, by the end of this year, we will spend an additional £656 million. Pounds. That's additional £656 million pounds on having food delivered to our doorstep. Oh, wow. No wonder McDonald's introduced the delivery service. Has anybody taken that up? You liars. Uh. <laughs> yeah, so, so whispering to each other, yeah, I have. Um, <laughs> it's apparent there's a hole in the market. People want to have food delivered to their door. Talking about McDonald's, the fast food burger outlets, they've seen a 5.1% increase this year uh, in, in sales. And they're actually due, they predict, to see another 4.5% increase next year. We are buying more fast food and having it delivered than ever before. <laughs> We're a nation that love our food. <laughs> we love our food. And the point is that we want more and more of it, and we want to ma- get hold of it in the most convenient way. Just what's the most convenient way? We can get our hands on it, or get our teeth around it, or whatever. You know, we just we want more of it. We're a culture of excess and luxury, and we're kind of addicted to what the psychoanalysts call the pleasure principle. Have you heard of that? The pleasure principle. We Brits, we're hardcore pleasure seekers. It's what we're good at. It's what we do. We're just out to seek pleasure. The flip side of this, and this is rather bizarre, the flip side to this food excess on the one side, there's been an increase of various eating disorders across our country. More and more people are suffering with Disorders like anorexia and, and bulimia. It's estimated there are actually one, yeah, 1.6 million people are affected by some kind of eating disorder that I 
like what I just described. And that's just in the UK. And they say that that is a gross underestimate. That's just people who come forward to get help. I mean, there are those that just don't. You know, it's so sad. So 1.6 million plus people. So many people, and especially young people, young women, are living with issues of body image, self-worth. Sometimes they're just racked with guilt and shame as they try to compare themselves to the images that we see every single day on the, uh, the, the racks, the magazine racks in, in the shops. These images of the perfect man, the perfect woman, the yeah, they're Photoshop. They're not real, you know. But these images of these people, they become like idols to so many. And they'll do absolutely, well, all sorts of things to try and imitate them, to try and be like this image. So within our society, there's this kind of tension. On the one hand, we have this like food excess. And you know, we want to satiate our, our pleasures on the one side. And you end up looking like me. <laughs> so there's on one side. And then on the other side, you've got body idolatry and, and, you know, with all the insecurities and fears and things that come along with that. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that one is the cause of the other, and maybe it is in some cases, maybe it's not. But what these two things have something in common. The thing that they have in common is an unhealthy relationship to food. We have an unhealthy relationship to food. And often the driving kind of motivator, the thing that sits below all of those desires for food and desire for all the pleasure that we get from food and other things, or or desires for body image, the thing that sits below that is, as I said before, it's what the psychologists or the psychoanalysts, they call the pleasure principle. And that is just this instinctive, this built-in seeking of pleasure an avoidance of pain. It's like we'll do anything to satisfy our biological and psychological needs. We're in it for that, you know, the pleasure, for in the moment. We just want to feel good now. <laughs> but how many of us know that that quick fix that we kind of buy into, so often we're paying for years and years <laughs> down, the, down the road? And the big problem is, is that we believe the lie that this is freedom. <laughs> This is freedom. Yeah, I'm free to indulge myself in the way that I choose. It's my choice. And you can't challenge that. I am free to do with my body what I want to do with my body. It's my body again. You can't challenge that in any way. But that's not really freedom. That's an illusion. And in fact, that kind of picture, that image uh, or interpretation of what of freedom, oh, we're not running our lives there. We're not in charge of our lives in that, in that picture of freedom. We're not running it. We are being run or we are being ruled by what the New Testament writers call our flesh. We're being ruled by our flesh, our own selfish inward desires. And the thing is, our culture, our society, our nation is set up perfectly to indulge our flesh. It entices it. It really does. It tempts it. And, you know, it makes a substantial amount of money <laughs> off, of, off of the fact that you and I have got this weakness in, uh, uh, in, in the way that we want to indulge our flesh and indulge uh, pleasures. So coming back then to our whole topic, living it. 
living life, we're talking about living life the Jesus way, living a lifestyle of Jesus. The question is, is there something within the way of Jesus, within the practices of Jesus, that will enable us to break out of this unhealthy relationship that so many of us have with our own body and with all of the desires and all the pleasures that we seek? Is there something in that Jesus does? The answer is yes. There are a number of things, and I think probably top of the list is the practice of fasting. Now, what we're going to do this morning, we're going to just take a look at what place fasting had in the life of Jesus and had in the life of his disciples and what, where fasting, what place it had in the role of the church um, down through history. And, we, and so I'm going to answer that question, what is uh, fasting, what is fasting, what isn't fasting, um, and then next week I'm going to come back and talk about why we fast. Okay, so that's, that's the goal anyway. And the problem is we have this lack of self-control over our bodies, this unhealthy desires for pleasure. Do you know that's not a modern day phenomenon? That's, that's not something that's just kind of come about over the last few years. We have always struggled right from the beginning with desires for certain pleasures and issues over our body. And we see that if you go right back to the beginning of Genesis. We see it. Genesis, um, the first three chapters, we we start to read about that. This is the story of God. Most of us, if not all of us, know this part of the story. God is uh, created the heavens and the earth he's created animals and plant life he's created all these things and then he goes ahead and creates human beings as well and he invites humans to rule over the creation he says come you're to rule over this and the two categories within ca- uh, creation that make up creation essentially were the animal kingdom and the plant world and he says come and rule over uh, those things. But then we get to chapter 3 and we see something goes horribly wrong. And it's kind of something that goes wrong in our bodies, in our physical self, but it affects every element of who we are, our spirit, our soul, everything, our mind, emotions, the whole package. So that's what we're going to look at is Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, first book in the Bible if you got your phones, yeah, we've got some phone apps opening up. Give you a chance to do that. Genesis chapter 3, right at the beginning, it says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman, she kind of corrected him. He like misquoted God there. And so she kind of corrects him. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you would die. You would not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was uh, was good for food and pleasing to the eye. In other words, it was pleasurable and also desirable for gaining wisdom. 
she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And guess what he did? He ate it too. And the story plays out. We know the story. Again, we're, we're very familiar with this. Now, what I find interesting is that this story of something to do with food. <laughs> it's related to humans' inability to not eat something that was put in front of them. Now, the temptation by the serpent here, it's, it's not simply just to get them to eat food. That wasn't the sin. That it was trying to draw them into actually doing or, or to commit. The temptation was to get them, to them and indeed to, to get us, to redefine what's good and evil, to redefine what's right and what's wrong, and also to tempt them and to tempt us to trust our own instinct and our own idea of what it means to flourish as human beings as opposed to trusting what God's plan for that actually is. That's what temptation is all about. Don't trust God. Ignatius, he was the early church father in the uh, first century. He was a bishop of Antioch, I think. Yeah, Ignatius. He said it like this. Sin is our unwillingness to trust that that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. So that's what sin is. And and that's what temptation is designed to pull you and me towards. It's an unwillingness to trust that God has nothing but our best in, uh, in mind. But look at what the tool was. I mean, what was the means that the, the, the devil used, that the serpent used, that the tool that he actually used? Food. <laughs> he used food. I mean, what does that say about us human beings? What does that say about how we relate to, to food? <laughs> Just the whole dealing with, you know, should I or shouldn't eat this? Maybe that's it's a big challenge to us. Is that what it's saying? It's all about our desire for food and desire for pleasure. That is the problem. Also notice in the story, there's kind of an inversion. There's this reversing of the order of things, of the way God made it. Whereas humans, both male and female, they were invited to come and rule over the creation, uh, as I said earlier. They were invited to come um, to rule over the animal world. They were rule over the... The, the, the plants and the everything. Here, after what had happened, there's this kind of a reversal of that. Human beings seem to give up our authority and power to rule. And those things started to rule over us. The serpent ruled, you know, from the animal world, we gave the authority to him. And the fruit, in effect, we give power and authority to the fruit of the tree, the, the plant world, to, to also rule over us. So our unhealthy relationship towards food and our unhealthy desires for pleasure have always been the big kahuna problems for us right from the very uh, beginning. But it's not all bad news. There's good news. If we turn to chapter 4 of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, this is the great, great news. This is the good news. Jesus came to straighten all that light out. Jesus came to fix everything they'd done. All that we'd lost or all that we'd given up, Jesus came to recapture and to reestablish. He came to reestablish God's rule on the earth. So that's, I mean, it's the good news. 
So Matthew chapter 4, this is where we come into it. This is just after Jesus has been baptized. And we read this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. (laughs) No kidding. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Well, well, well. It was all about food again. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. The temptation is related to food. Again, this temptation, it's kind of is about food, but it's not. It's actually, you know, about way more than, than just food. You know, clearly eating is not wrong. But see the tactic. That's the point. The, the method, the means that the Satan uses to tempt Jesus, again, is food. It's kind of like, listen to your body, Jesus. Listen to the cravings of your body. You're hungry, aren't you? Listen to that. Bow down to that. Surrender. Give yourself over to that. Answer to it. It's like, you know, God, God's not going to help you with that. Besides, you're supposed to be the son of man. Why don't you prove it? And you can take matters into your own hand and you can satisfy your own hunger because you're hungry. So come on, get on with it. Verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Or I shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the story again goes on. Now, the way Matthew has written this was rather clever, rather interesting, very intentional. Theologians, theologians say that he is intentionally drawing parallels here between Jesus, the Jesus story and the Genesis 1, 2, 3 story. It's kind of like the garden story again being played out all over, uh, all over again. Jesus here is the Adam, the, the, the human, who's kind of facing up. Um, to the tempter. And the tempter, again, using food. <laughs> it isn't about food, but it kind of is. It's more, it's more than food, but it's connected. You know, it's the means by which the tempter executes his plan for temptation. But where the two stories divert, where they separate, the difference is, is where Adam and Eve failed and they succumb to that drawer of our selfish desires for pleasure and so on and so forth, lacking trust in God. Jesus succeeded. Where we all mess up uh, in this whole thing and we're defeated, Jesus is victor. And in doing that, in succeeding the way he did, he effectively introduces a brand new kingdom of what real freedom is about. He brings in God's rule of freedom, which is available to anybody who um, desires it. So what is it we notice then about the lifestyle of Jesus? Uh, you know, and that led to him being able to succeed where Adam and Eve failed and, and where so many billions of us have failed. What is it in his lifestyle that we see that enabled him to succeed? What about the practices? Well, it was silence and solitude. Uh, that's what he, he was there for. He's in, you know, we spoke about that three or four weeks ago, and I used this very passage again where we were talking about silence and solitude. There was prayer involved, and there was also fasting. He was fasting for 40 days of fasting. Remember I was saying 
uh, again a few weeks ago, Jesus, Jesus wasn't at his all-time low spiritually when he'd been fasting for 40 days. Sometimes we think that. He was like at his weakest, and that's when the Satan came to him. He was actually at the height of his power. And it was then and only then that he was able to stand up against the, the, the Satan and the temptations that he was thrown against him. And also the temptations that reside within his own body. So it's kind of from here that Jesus effectively launches his kingdom work on the earth with fasting. And we see later on how fasting is just like it's everywhere. It's all throughout his whole life. Move on to Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. This is Jesus. He's having a bit of a pep talk, a bit of a team talk with his disciples. And he says this. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites hypocrites do. (laughs) For they disfigure their faces and they show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you. They will receive their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what he's done in secret will reward you. I mean, it's just like three verses, two two key things that really come out of that. Firstly, two assumptions of Jesus. First assumption, Jesus assumes that all these disciples are fasting. You notice that? He said, when you fast. He didn't say, if you fast. It was, when you fast. So there's a basic assumption that his disciples are engaging in the practice of fasting. The second assumption from Jesus is, he assumes that we're going to screw it up. (laughs) Mess it up, sorry. He he assumes that we will try to uh, fast for all the wrong reasons. That we'll try to fast just to kind of show off, make ourselves look super spiritual. It won't work and, you know, we won't get the rewards that we're looking for and all that sort of stuff. He assumes that we're going to mess things up. I think, that's great. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. But, I mean, coming back to that first part there, it says Jesus assumes that his disciples, or it means Jesus is, uh, is assuming that his disciples are going to fast, maybe on a semi-regular basis. So the question I want to ask us here this morning is, how are you doing with that? Why don't you all stand for a minute? Not you. Not <laughs> ask a couple of questions. It, I want you to remain standing if you fast at least once a year. So at least once a year. Cool. I want you to remain standing if you fast at least once a month. And I want you to remain standing if you fast at least once a week. What happened to everybody? I thought there would be somebody. (laughs) the whole point is we don't do it all that often some of us you know at least once a month and that's that's really really cool it's more than than what i i do um but it's it's something we don't really do a whole lot of these days but you know that wasn't always the case you know i was talking there about jesus in the time of jesus for a jew you know first century jewish uh community you would fast twice a week you would fast on every monday and every thursday fasting was just a core practice a fundamental practice 
within society. You were expected to do that. We, we, just, we just did it. And that continued on through the early church. The only thing we actually did is we changed the two days. <laughs> um, it's quite funny, actually. We, we have some really early writings from, uh, it's called the, the Didache. Uh, anybody heard of the Didache? Yeah, um, the Didache is kind of first century writings. It's, it's the earliest Christian writings we have outside of the New Testament. It was probably penned by second generation church people, okay? Uh, talking about uh, matters of governance and certain practices and so on. But we, so we got some of them, and they say this. But do not let your fast, oh, where are we? <laughs> but do not let your fast coincide with those of the hypocrites. Now, we assume they're talking about some of the Jewish people or the Pharisees or whatever, or just hypocritical believers, Christian believers. They were there then, believe it or not. Yeah, they were there. But so, but do not let your fast coincide with those of the hypocrites. Hypocrites, They fast on a Mondays and Thursdays, so you must fast on Wednesday and Thursday. They try to disassociate themselves um, from them. And so the church fasted for, those, for two, two days a week, solid. It's fasting. And that went on for a very long time. What else? Fourth century, around the Council of Nicaea time, very important time in the history of the church. Fourth century, the church involved itself in, in the church calendar event called Lent. Most of us know what Lent is about, that 40-day period in the lead up to Easter. Nowadays, we talk about giving up something for Lent, don't we? You know, giving up a, a bad habit or you know, giving up watching TV or giving up social media, uh, you know, Facebook or whatever, giving up on alcohol, whatever it is that you do, you kind of give up in that Lent period. But for the church back in the 4th century, it was very much a 40-day period of full-on fasting. So you would not eat during daylight hours. So from daylight, you would not eat until sundown. And then you would have a basic meal. You know, so no meat, no alcohol. And that would go on for 40 days. So for the early church, fasting then was, it was a church-wide thing. You know, we, we all did it together, and we did it regularly on you know, two days a week sort of practice. We had periodic fasting. There was fasting. You did fasting before the Lord's Supper. You did fasting before the Holy Saturday. There was fasting before baptism. I mean, if you were a candidate that's going to be baptized, you were expected to fast two days before. And if you were baptizing the individual, you were also expected to, uh, to, to fast for one day. Isn't that crazy? As I say, many of these practices, they continued on right the way through church history, right the way up to the, including into the 18th century. So, you know, fairly recent uh, church history. Now, if you know anything about you know, more modern history, church history, you'll probably know the name John Wesley. Anybody know John Wesley? Yeah, most of us know. The brothers, the Wesley brothers, along with a guy called Whitfield, they started the Methodist movement or the Methodist stream of the Protestant church. I know Wesley, John Wesley, was a really influential guy right across the Western world, not only just the church. This is a quote. So I've got a quote of John Wesley now. He wrote this. This is during the mid-1700s. 
I fear there are now thousands of Methodists, so-called, both in England and in Ireland, who, following the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting. Who are so far from fasting twice in the week, they do not fast twice in a month. <laughs> he goes on. The man who never fasts is no more in the way to heaven than the man who never prays. Ooh. Do you feel guilty? <laughs> Now, my point is, is not, not that I necessarily agree with his conclusions there. My point is just to show how the church viewed fasting as a core fundamental practice right up to and including around the 1700s, up to the 18th century. Clearly, things have changed today. <laughs> now, if, today, if you want to talk about fasting, in the sense, spiritual sense, you talk about fasting, you talk about it in society, or you talk about it within some churches, they'll look at you and think, you're kind of weird. It sounds kind of cultish, that, <laughs> to some. It sounds like you're a bit crazy, you're a bit whack, you're a bit over the top. Well, why is that? And I think it's because it's so far out of step of, like, normal society. It's so far removed and disconnected from that. So for something that was just so key for Jesus, so key and so central to him and you know the early church and the most of church history, it seems it's like a lost practice for us today in the Western church. So the two questions I want to address is what exactly is fasting? That's the question we're going to answer today. Next week we're going to go on to, well, why do we do it? Why do we actually fast? So first then, what is fasting? And now that sounds like a bit of a stupid question. But you know what? There is some real crazy ideas out there. Real diverse understanding of what fasting actually is. Uh, there's lots of misinformation. So let's just start by what, talking what it isn't. Okay, fasting is not. Fat, fasting isn't abstaining. Fasting, and this is quite common, and maybe you've heard this before, where you've heard people say, you know, I'm fasting from social media, or I'm fasting from watching TV, like Emmerdale or something. That's just, that's just called getting a life, isn't it? Ooh. <laughs> some people are giving scowls. Uh, probably heard somebody say that. Uh, or they, they say, I'm fasting from shopping, I'm fasting from spending, or I'm fasting from going down the pub or whatever it is. Now, the thing is, all those things, they're, kind of, they're, okay, they're great. And then, do you know what? I'd encourage anyone within the church, in this whole area of abstaining from habits that are kind of going to distract our heart pursuit and our love for Jesus, do you know what? I would encourage it. I say go for it. Absolutely. But let's not call it fasting because it's not fasting. Let's call it what it is. It's I'm not doing Facebook for a week. <laughs> or I, I'm not spending my money for the next three months on clothes. Or, you know, I'm not going down the pub this week. Let's call it what it is, but it is not biblical fasting. Secondly, it is not a restricted food diet. You know, I'm talking about some kind of low-fat, you know, weight loss, eating regime. You know, over the years, there has been something of a phenomenon uh, come come along called the Daniel Fast. Have you heard about this? In terms of eating plans, so the Daniel Fast 
man, I did a search online, and there are hundreds of books under that title. There are websites that talk about how the Daniel fast and everything. Here's some of the books. Oh, you've gone through them already. Daniel, the first book I'd come up with was Daniel Fast, 50 Plant-Based Whole Foods, Daniel Fast Recipes, plus Daniel Fast Food List and Breakthrough Secrets. Boy, do you want to go and buy that book. Another book, The Ultimate Guide to the Daniel Fast. And then there was the Daniel Fast for Spiritual Breakthrough. They like these breakthrough things, some of these people. Uh, there was the Daniel Fast for Weight Loss, a biblical approach to losing weight and keeping it off. I've ordered my copy. <laughs> and there's the Daniel Fast, Biblical and Scientific Fast. This is just a small amount. There are, as I say, there are hundreds of books. You Google them, they're, they're out there. Dozens of books, uh, websites on it. Now, essentially, they are based on the Old Testament book of Daniel, okay? And in particularly Daniel chapter 1 and a little bit of ch- uh, chapter 10. And the whole idea is that you eat no meat, so you're only eating vegetables and drinking water for a three-week period. And there's kind of variations of, of that. Again, eating this way, if that's your goal, if your goal is to lose weight, I say go for it. <laughs> go and order the books. As I say, oh, no, I haven't ordered it, but... I would, yeah, I'd try that. I, I'm, I need to lose weight. But it's not fasting. It isn't fasting. Um, absolutely. Daniel, when you read chapter 1, Daniel, is, he does only eat vegetables. He does only eat water. And he's referenced to that in chapter 10 as well. But, you know, there's absolutely no reference. No, nowhere does the word fast or fasting appear in the whole of Daniel's story. It's, it's not to do with fasting. It's, it's a restricted diet. It's not fasting. And let's call it what it is. Let's not say it's fasting. Let's just say we need to lose weight. We're going to do another diet. That, and that's why. Lastly, it's not some kind of health trend or health fad. It's not a latest health fad. One health fad that's recently came about, and this was kind of for men, okay? So sorry, ladies. This was a men's fad. Uh, it became popular among some of the famous people. It was intermittent fasting. You know, the, you've come across it, or some fellas, you do it. Um, it's where you don't eat for like 14 or 15 hours per day. And then you can eat pretty much what you want outside of that. So you don't eat for 14 or 15 hours. Apparently, it revolutionized your life, uh, changed your physique like never before. Guys, you're going to be so ripped if you do this. Um, it, it, <laughs> yeah. You sleep better. You'll be able to think things through a lot better. You're, you're more clearly. It's the intermittent fast. Again, this is not fasting in the biblical sense of what fasting is. Fasting is, uh, it, well, it's quite simply, it's about not eating food, right? It's not eating food. And on some occasions, it includes not drinking as well. We'll talk about that in a bit. But essentially, it's this. It's not eating food in order to feed on the Holy Spirit, in order to source our sustenance, our nourishment from the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've heard of Scott McKnight, uh, Pastry guy, writer. 
Uh, he defines fasting as this. Fasting is a person's whole body natural response to life's sacred moments. It's a whole body response. Dallas Willard, who I've quoted a few times in this series, fasting is feasting, but it's not on food. It's on the Lord and on doing his will. Other fasting is feasting on the Lord and not uh, and on doing his will. Do you know what? Jesus said something similar in John 4, uh, 4, 4 verse 34. He said, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So, are you starting to get the picture, the idea that fasting is about not eating? Yeah? It's not eating, but it is more than just not eating. And that's what I'm going to get onto next week, okay? Next time, we're going to get into that. But just in closing off today, if you're actually thinking about engaging in the practice of fasting, the Bible doesn't lock down on any particular type, time scale, minimum time, maximum time, or anything like that. It doesn't pin down any of that in, in the scriptures. It doesn't say you have to fast above a certain amount of time for it to be valid and for it to work or anything like that. <clears throat> you, you go through the Bible throughout church history. There were, there were one-day fasts, and that, and that was very common. We are just talking about some of those who one day for two days a week. From sunrise to sundown, there were those, so in that case, you would just skip breakfast and and lunch, and then you would eat again in the evening after sundown, perhaps eat a bit later. Um, Other examples could be uh, like nursing mums. They begin a fast on sunrise and maybe break the fast at noon, or break the fast at sort of three in the afternoon or whatever. Um, The Bible gives examples of three-day fasts, Seven-day fasts, a 40-day fast, right the way throughout the scriptures. Fasting is done regularly. Fasting was something done by individuals. It was done, done individually. It was something done corporately. But as I say, the Bible gives many examples of both of those. Pretty much all the major characters from in the Bible, they fasted. Um, throughout their life. Now, the question I want to get onto is, why? Why on earth do we do this thing called fasting? What should be our motivation? Because clearly, we can get that messed up. You know, from what Jesus was saying to the disciples, we can kind of get messed up. We can do it out of motivation of like, I just want to show off. I want to come across looking super spiritual, or I want to do it to lose weight. Yeah, we can do it all for the wrong reasons. Um, and so we're going to look at what, what is the correct motivation for that. That's next time we'll look, look at. So why don't we finish by standing and we'll pray.